0: Hello and welcome to Softcat's Explain It podcast series. This is episode 10 of season 5. With only a couple of episodes to go, we want to push the drama to the limit and end on some type of cliffhanger. But rest assured, we will be back for season 6 in 2023 and the story will just continue. My name is Dean Gardner, Sofcat's Field, Chief Technology Officer. We're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing new trends and ideas, as well as solutions to everyday problems in this fascinating and ever-changing world of tech. So the key is in the title, and on that note, I'll introduce today's topic. Bring me a higher love for education. Yes, this episode is another little special to follow up on our integrated care episode. But this time, we are discussing higher education. I don't need to emphasize how important the industry is, but as Whitney Houston said, very eloquently, teach them well and let them lead the way. And that is what we aim to do for you today. And I won't sing anymore. To share insights and to lead the way, let me introduce one of our residents and potentially his last appearance, hence the cliffhanger, Adam Luca, SoftCats Chief Technologist for Security, and we are both joined by the amazing Rachel Clay, SoftCats Head of Education, and Microsoft MVP, Alex Pearce, one of SoftCats Account Chief Technologists. Thank you all for joining me today. So Rachel, you recently attended a few education industry events. What were those events and why are those events so important in the higher education calendar?
1: Yeah, so we've recently attended the UCISA D.I.G. event, and we've also attended JISC security event. And they're really important because both of those organisations are, are the market leaders for higher education consortias. Um, so all of the higher education institutions look to them for the governing advice.
0: UCISA and JISC, these these bodies you talked about, who are they and what do they do and why are they important?
1: Yeah, so um, UCISA is an association which represents the whole of higher education and some of further education in provisioning of the academic management and administrative information systems. UCISA um, members are really other uh, leaders in digital transformation and IT development. And then with JISC, JISC, by the way, stands for Joint Information Systems Committee, for those that didn't know that. It changed its name back in 2012. But they're the UK's higher and further education's not-for-profit organisation for digital services and solutions. And what they do is, is they champion the importance of digital technologies for UK education and research. Interestingly, last month in October, um, there was actually an announcement that two organisations are going to be working more in collaboration on a range of important themes for the industry. And they're going to be focusing on licensing and procurement, cyber security, no shock there, uh, student record systems, sustainability, and how we work with our international students. And going forward, they're going to be co-authoring publications together um, and promoting what good practice looks like within the sector
0: we're all for collaboration rachel so that's a good thing right
1: absolutely yeah it's fantastic news
0: okay so uh, what were the what were the key trends that you saw from those those events and and certainly in in that sector today what are the priorities that you're, you're all seeing i'll maybe go to alex for that one
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dean, for having me on the podcast. Uh, The key things that were coming out is that this particular UCISA event was called UCISA Dig, which is around their cybersecurity. And of course, a lot of people talking about cybersecurity when we see in data that there's a lot more threat that's going on in the higher education and education space in in general. Some of the things we see coming out of Microsoft says that 80% of malware attacks happen in the education space. So that was a key topic. A lot of the presentations were around cybersecurity. The other vendors that were there were also cybersecurity or backup focused to help universities there from a compliance point of view. So a lot of the people that I spoke to, I got was lucky enough to be able to be there from a, an exhibitor point of view, was to be able to talk to people, find out where they are on their cybersecurity journey, their compliance journey, where they're on their backup journey, but also talk to them about just generally where they are from their education, IT, digital digital strategy kind of point of view,
0: so Alex, you talked a lot about security there, and that was a focus or appear to be a focus um Luca security is very close to your heart. are you seeing that you know higher education bodies are they you know a target for cyber attackers or should they be focusing based on what Alex was describing there much more on how they mitigate against security risks
3: um probably to try and cool the flames rather than add fuel to them. You know, I I don't personally believe the data indicates that universities are significantly more targeted than other organizations of similar size and complexity. Um, however, universities have often underinvested versus their equivalent industry peers, and that has led to large, complex networks, large systems without dedicated cyber resources when we think about the higher education sector, it's very unique to think about how many students and users that they fundamentally serve versus the number of people within an IT or even a cybersecurity function. And we look at the levels of investment that are made per head and compare that to say a similar financial services organization or a similar healthcare organization, you'll find a massive disparity. So it doesn't surprise me that As a sector, it appears or it seems like there are more incidents of cyber attack, but I I honestly don't believe that's because they are particularly being focused on, although there has been some evidence of specific nation state threat actors targeting certain types of universities and organisations for cyber espionage reasons rather than more
0: traditional ransomware. And on top of that, Rachel, other priorities, what other things are we seeing in higher education today that you think are a focus? and From our perspective, Softcat, um, where do we add support and value? Where do we play
1: in that equation? Yeah, sure. So there's sort of five key areas that we're focusing on with the higher education vertical at the moment. So that's automation, sustainability, survivability, operational resilience, and the services. And our ethos as an education division at SoftCat is to provide the best advice on using the technology to improve educational outcomes, which will help all of those five topics. And we aim to provide our customers with everything required to engage and inspire our students to prepare for what's next. And sustainability is really, really critical for that. It's something that the students really look for um, when they're looking around to universities and when they're looking where to apply. Um, And so, us being able to support them in that area is really critical at the moment.
0: I'm going to pick up on something you said there, survivability. What, what, I mean, obviously things like sustainability, it's, it's a bit tangible and I'll come on to that afterwards as well, because I'm interested in what that means. But survivability, what does, what does that mean? Go on, Luca, let's go there, let's go with you. So survivability and, and operational resilience are quite
3: tightly linked, I think, as, as areas of focus. and And really what you're aiming to do is help organisations adopt a flexible approach to dealing with an ever-changing, you know, ecosystem of challenges, and and those can be both technological. They could be financial. They could be, you know, uh, biohazards like COVID. They could be changes in the geopolitical tensions between different um, countries, which could change uh, visa application rules. You know, if you think about international students. So, it's how do organisations adopt a culture of adaptation and evolution? rather than a more traditional approach whereby you have a crisis, you activate your crisis management, and you try to aim to revert back to the state you were in previously. Now, if we take COVID as the, the easiest worked example here, how many organizations activated their business continuity plans or equivalents when COVID happened, but actually ended up going back to being the businesses they were before COVID? Actually, we had to evolve. We had to adapt. We had to live in the new normal. And actually, there's opportunities for organisations that do adapt. Actually, you know, actually these periods of challenge or these periods of adversary actually drives innovation. And actually, innovation can be good for organisations who have the right culture to adapt to that. So that's for me where the kind of survivability and and uh, operational resilience really comes in. Is how do you embed that within senior leadership teams to move away from? Yeah, it's a culture of recovery to a culture of evolution.
0: And so, Alex, on that point, what, what have some of these organisations done? What have some of these universities done, um, you know, during COVID, post-COVID? Because, you know, education moved to home. It went it went remote, like most organisations had to. Have education authorities or universities, have they adapted? What have they done? Can you give me an example of, of, of where, where they've
2: evolved uh, absolutely, and the, the universities have had to change. They've had to adapt, just like many organisations, to remote working, remote learning, and uh, the a lot of the universities are now offering more of a um, uh, AVD kind of uh, desktop uh equivalents to be able to get into the systems that they require online learning. How does that work with mentors? So Teams is a lot more uh used for for meetings. So actually it's become easier for students to get hold of a mentor. Uh, their mentors previously would be I'll be in my office between eight and nine o'clock tomorrow morning and come and see me. Wherefore now they can see a calendar they can book some time in. So this has generally helped both the, the learner and the lecturer, the mentor, the coach, all those different people that are there to be able to support that further higher education to, to actually help them improve their learning and her, improve their outcomes both with any dissertations or research that they have to do and that's kind of where just one technology has actually helped and we've actually seen some universities that we work with the ones who had already had that in place do extremely well during lockdowns for Funding is becoming more difficult within the university space as a post-COVID, but also with fees not going up. You notice that fees are actually staying the same, but our cost of living is going up. So universities are being tight um, and having to tighten the purse strings that they've got. So being able to offer more remotely, offer more digital-based learning rather than being on site, Supports the, supports the university in the delivery and actually help them with that funding to increase their security, increase the digital learning and complete their business model of things that they want to be able to achieve.
0: I've spoken to you previously about um, universities that have kind of going international and um, kind of pushing the envelope of um, bringing students into a, a campus that historically they would have had to attend and visit. Can you give us examples of where that's kind of evolved?
2: Yeah, so we, we've worked with a university that have put in a uh, a remote desktop and AVD uh, in place where it would enable the the learner to go off and access the systems as if they were in the UK. So let's take a student from China as an example, couldn't travel to the UK because of lockdowns that might be happening in their own country still or not able to travel because of restrictions, but they still want them to have the same level of technology and by being able to access remotely into that. But it's not just about the technology, it's about that business model as well. So it's not just going, you know what, we're going to offer this particular type of course. Well, you've got to make sure that there's still enough students that want to do that course. How do they have the support, the coaching, the mentoring, access to the lecturers, access to resources, library materials? They all have to go digital to be able to support. So those ones that have survived and been able to move to that kind of operating model to support that digital-based learning and what that means are the ones that have really excelled over the last two, three years. But we'll also see that moving into the near future while there is that funding crisis as such within uh, the higher education space that I was mentioning a minute ago.
0: And you, you mentioned an acronym there, AVD. What, what does that
2: What does that mean? What is AVD? Uh, so I, I guess I've been slightly product kind of uh, thing. It doesn't help being a Microsoft MVP, but uh, <laughs> Azure Virtual Desktop AVD. My apologies.
0: Okay, cool. Um, Rachel, you mentioned sustainability early being a, a factor to bring students in and being used as a, a competitive edge. I'd say to get students in, what universities doing? Do you think to kind of use sustainability as a as a poll, um, and realistically, in your opinion, do you think universities are acting to address sustainability in how they run? Yeah. So
1: interestingly, when we were at the UCISA DIG event this time around, we had a university come up to us and say that they've actually experienced students saying that they're not going to come to that university because they've handed out a physical prospectus rather than sending it out digitally. And things like that are incredibly important now for the student experience. If they go into the campus and there's no effective Wi-Fi as soon as they're, they're in there, there's, there's no instant access then that puts them off going there straight away. So from a sustainability perspective, it hugely impacts student retention if they're not looking at sustainable resources going forwards
0: and that experience piece that that student experience obviously as you say going in and experiencing those things and i assume even what alex has said logging in in remotely and ensuring they're getting those experiences in a really effective way we're living in a generation where you click on an app it works if it doesn't you go and download another app of of the equivalent nature And, and and what you're describing there, it seems like that's the the competitive landscape a lot of these universities are living and breathing so in terms of how they address that and the funding challenges that obviously are coming the student numbers, am I right in saying they're going up or not going up?
1: Um, at the moment, the student numbers are probably staying the same.
0: And so obviously with that, if it's not increasing, the pool of um, students essentially is getting in you know, a flat lining. How are they, comp- and sustainability is one area, a- any other areas they're competing in? Any other areas that, that differentiates one from the other that you can call out, not just sustainability?
1: I think something interesting um, going on from Alex's previous point as well is the universities that adopted the old concept of flipped, the flipped classroom or flipped learning have done incredibly well and they've carried on that methodology as time's gone on and um, post-COVID and that's really, really helped with their survivability aspect and with the sustainability as well. Um, so looking at that, but also looking at automation across the board, Alex mentioned this previously earlier as well, but the digitalization of, of assets within university. Um, to make them more efficient in their processes. These efficiencies will help the students going forward um, with the sustainability aspect as well.
0: So, okay, so efficiencies, creating uh, automation flows of, of what things, Alex? What Can you give me an example of areas they're focusing on to automate across the campus or with, to help their students?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a few different areas, really. So the, the first is around that learner experience, so, yeah, great. They, they've got to be able to have a new starter. But sometimes they, if you look at someone like Open universities, as an example, they have somebody who starts. Well, actually, great. They've paid for a course. They're going to go on a course. But we need to get an account created for them. We need to get certain bits of technology provisioned fairly quickly. And that's exactly where automation kind of kicks in. And the universities that do that really well have that better approval from students because their learning experience is already better. So that's really important to them as around that. The other thing I've started to see a bit more around that kind of automation and you trying to improve the whole experience for the learner, the lecturer or anybody at the university really is around um, iPads. So an integration platform as a service and that ability to be able to bring out um, or surface multiple endpoints into a single API really means that both developers can go off and build better student platforms, learning platforms, portfolio systems, but the end user can go and request everything about them. They can understand exactly, you know what, this student's doing A, hey, they're doing great, but they're not paid for their fees. Is there something not right? So, it really helps that kind of a learner journey to understand where they are both of that automation but also going you know what here we go here's all our data about that person as well which links into all those systems nicely to say you know what you could wake up one morning as their lecturer as their mentor as their coach and go i can see exactly what that student is doing and whether i need to intervene support them or just congratulate them for for doing a great job
0: so That overall experience and managing that experience becomes the university's priority ultimately um, and being proactive as opposed to reactive based on circumstance, data, situation of that particular student. From what you're describing, that's such an important part now of being intuitive and working with that student to ensure they're getting the best out of the experience. Also, they're investing in it, so you'd expect that, wouldn't you? But I guess there's different universities and different stages um, of, of that their own journey to achieve that. Luca, operational, I think excellence. I think you mentioned that earlier on. Resilience. Resilience. There we go. Sorry, thank you for correcting me. So operational resilience. What does it? What does that actually mean? Obviously, with security, you can be pointed with that, and there's solutions. But operational resilience, you kind of touched upon it a little bit earlier. But can we go across that and kind of give me some examples of what you mean?
3: Yeah, so operational resilience is, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, is that adaptation to challenge. um, A good example may be, you know, in a cybersecurity perspective, your ability to recover from ransomware incident. You know, that's going to be the most obvious when you kind of come to that IT perspective. But to think about it a little bit more broadly, it could be how does the university – manage its budgets when the pound falls against the dollar and things become 30% more expensive? And at what point does that become unattainable? What does the university do to manage that financial risk? Does it put some money aside every year to deal with currency fluctuations, you know, to be able to absorb changes? Um, another example could be changes in you know um, political tensions between organisations changing visa rules. So all of a sudden, if X number of your students are international, they're unable to obtain a visa, how does the university adapt to those situations? So it's, it's at a strategic level having certain key scenarios that you've identified and then put resiliency frameworks around them that allow you to assess those, think about the interdependencies, think about the mitigations that could be put in place, and then having a continual way of managing that changing risk landscape, both from a technological perspective such as cyber, but also from financial and operational and all the other things that we need to think about to make an organisation operationally resilient. I think to drop down a level, you know, and probably up, provide some some more pointed thoughts, I guess, when we think about the most typical operational resilience exercise or incident that most organisations will experience is probably cyber attack. You know, yes, we've lived through COVID, but, you know, it's maybe a once in 100 uh, hundred years scenario or, or incident. So um, when we think about it from a cybersecurity perspective, we're really thinking about what processes and capabilities can an organization put in place to you know prepare for that type of activity detect and respond to an incident rapidly but also to be able to recover which was you know a big focus of a lot of the talks at the event was actually how do you recover from these incidents because I think it is broadly accepted that no prevention solution is 100% effective and therefore given that statistical Analysis, you know, you should always invest some money in preparing for the worst and being able to recover those systems most effectively. I remember one particularly interesting talk from a, a CISO of a university, and she was talking about kind of living through these, you know, uh, these sort of cyber incidents. But what I really enjoyed about her talk was you will survive. I often think they're seen as catastrophic events. And, and while I don't think you wish them upon everyone, you know, almost every organization that's undergone cyber attack. It's pretty rare to talk about the ones that went out of business. You know, people lived through them and they are survivable and the survival is made easier by good preparation and good investment. But fundamentally, almost all of these are things that organisations can get through. So yeah, as I say, in summary, you know, really focus on on that preparation phase, ensuring that you have the plan, that you've thought about these things, but also that you're making investments in the right areas and, and spreading your investment across both preventative stuff that you know hopefully stops you having an incident but putting a good amount of money into the what if everything goes wrong scenario it's the paying it forward pay some money forward to when you're having a bad day and a uh, and the worst has happened because you'll be very grateful for it at that point
0: so you've mentioned obviously a, a fair bit there in terms of investing and prioritizing where do you and Rachel maybe get your perspective where do you see education the higher education I suppose, industry going in terms of next wave of technical innovation or um, student improvement? And where do you think higher education needs to invest or prioritise its focus? Just give me some thoughts on those things.
1: So I think they need to really focus on the employability aspect So preparing their students for the world of work is really, really important. And it's never been a more important time as to right now. But even the most unsuspecting jobs out there use technology in one way or another. Um, So universities really need to look at developing the student experience to incorporate the skills that they'll need for the future.
0: Alex, any thoughts on that? Because, I mean, that's, I suppose you'd expect that, right, from any education body that they're setting people up to prepare them for work and a professional life. That's surely why you take a degree but, but you're are you saying that some of the areas that we experience every day maybe there's not as much focus on some of those areas as there should be
2: yeah and if i, I got to, to visit a university local to me recently and they were talking about a new campus that was built and they've built an innovation hub and i think what what's changed certainly in the last kind of 10-15 years is this understanding of lifelong learning it's not just about, you know what, we finish university, we don't learn anymore. Actually, there's so much more and people want to learn both subjects that are not necessarily related to work. And there's a lot more of that online learning kind of side of things towards, you know what, I want a little bit more about this or I want to learn a bit more about that. And universities are having to adapt to that, hence more online courses kind of coming along. Um, innovation centres to get people thinking creatively, thinking outside of the box. Um, with the particular university that I sort of went to see a couple a couple of months ago, they got something called an igloo, um, and this igloo is is a, a basically a big th- uh, 360 screen. So you go and s- stand inside of the screen, and it actually it helps become more immersive. So when doctors have got to spend so many hours studying and practicing, opening and dissecting maybe to into the human body, this is an opportunity for them to see more inside and using VR uh, or the metaverse to understand what did it feel like to be inside of the Roman amphitheater, as an example. This is kind of where the future of um, education goes is to make it really immersive and giving people more experience around actually this is what it's like to be in the workplace. So then they are better when they start so that they can progress and just evolution for the human race will grow better because we're giving them that better opportunity when they're younger rather than learning it at an older age.
0: It's funny, isn't it, Luca? You've been on a few of these with me. How many times immersive VR metaverse has come up? Certainly this year, we I think we did, a, an, ep- well, we did do an episode at the beginning of the year on the subject. I um, mean, it's amazing that that was a big, beginning of the year when I think people were asking what those things meant. And actually, as this year has gone on, it's becoming a bit more crystal in terms of where it plays within certain industries. And I think higher education is what you've described there is one of those that you just kind of give that immersive experience to the student. And also, you know, have we got a generation of people now that are going to be growing up with those things at their fingertips, that they're going to expect that experience. Because I suppose that's the other thing with things like education. It's trying to keep up with the trends that are, are coming with the younger generation and the technology they've got at their fingertips. And what you're describing there is these things are happening. How fast can these educational authorities come up and get up to speed to present those as education parts of a student's or you know a person's um, learning journey? So is there any any other areas, Alex, that you think apart from metaverse, VR and immersive worlds that universities and education crystal balling what they'll what what potentially is going to be on the horizon over the next few years
2: research is becoming bigger and bigger um and it's an area certainly that we're focusing more on softcat is supporting that researcher to be able to go off and understand and there's so much data that's available to come out from the nhs around covid the government would love to learn more around how that happened, how did it spread? Well, by giving it out and giving out research grants to people to be able to understand these kind of things is how we're going to improve, how we're going to get these outcomes and making sure that paper Work gets out there. I I got to go to Microsoft's research center, good over a decade ago now, and to hear about how you can dissect DNA, and actually the computing power is out there to be able to go. You know what? We can figure out now that DNA can be dissected, and we can go off and stop people from having cancer. The problem is, is that we haven't got the nano kind of technology to go into the bloodstream to figure out that kind of DNA. But that's where research kicks in as well, to be able to find that innovation, to be able to take that kind of coding that's needed, put it into the mining mutis piece of technology to be able to go and help people get better. So universities are there. They're the ones doing that research. They're the ones helping to understand the future of tech, coding, uh, opportunities, And whether that is in the building sector, in the healthcare sector, whether it's in technology sector, there's so many different areas of innovation, you can use both what we've just talked about there, but also just that manpower sitting there thinking about, you know what, why what does this actually really mean? and what are the outcomes and what can we actually achieve with this and that's such an important thing for those researchers and a university i live in birmingham a new um a university just down here having a new uh, healthcare building built as part of an innovation center that's going to help from that research point of view because they know that you know what we can help the nhs we can help healthcare worldwide to be able to improve
0: i'm just sit- i'm sitting on dissecting dna right now that sense sounds- that sounds
2: a bit like fun. I I have to admit, it was quite a interesting session seeing a hundred odd MVPs fall to sleep as this researcher <laughs> just got more and more deep into this section and just people's like, I just don't know what he's on about now. It's just yeah. too complicated. But It was quite interesting that actually this is the kind of thing that people are doing that's out there and we just don't hear about it. We just hear that all of a sudden that they've invented the light bulb, they've invented better battery powers and think about it in the future. We if if our phones now could do so much more with the power, our mobile phones, if they could have a battery life that kind of ten times, fifteen times or the consumed power quickly, we could do a hell of a lot more on our mobile devices that's the future that's going to come from research that's going to come from people studying into how does research technology work and how can we fast charge it how can we get power to it and that battery power is going to support cars it's going to support sustainability it's going to improve so many different aspects of where we actually are in our day-to-day lives
0: so from what you're saying there the student journey is obviously a learning experience but also from what you're saying, the research part of universities and there's a history of this of, of innovating, inventing, creating new ways of doing things. Actually, putting those areas and investments into this sector, what you're saying there, it produces outcomes quicker than pretty much anywhere else. So it's it's, it's a range of not just learning, but obviously being able to be creative and and invent to an outcome um, and deliver something of, of of you know societal or Benefits to humanity, if you will so so yeah, fascinating
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, it, it's interesting if you think about as you go through the education system, you start at school and everybody learns the same thing it's the national curriculum, you go to college, you all kind of start learning. A bit more around the things that you want, like biology and chemistry and A-level. University is your opportunity to deep dive into a subject that you want to go into. Let's say criminology is an example. However, by the time you get to year three or year four into your master's, you're looking at something that's very, very specific. And you're spending a lot of time researching on just that one little thing that will potentially impact so much. But it enables people to be able to go, you know what, I want to spend and dedicate my time on a particular criminology in a particular way that something happens. So I'm going to actually do that. And I'm going to put my research paper out there, or my dissertation out there, and it's going to have to help 10 of people, 100 of people, 1000 people, millions of people that's kind of where it is. And some people, they then use that to go and teach. They'll go and to do, uh, become a doctorate in that particular area, or they use it as their next level of research to be able to do things even deeper and to search. And they can get grants to be able to support those kind of things. That's what universities are there for, they're to help both you to understand, you know what, criminology is use as an example, is the area I want to go. But actually, if I want to deep dive into something, I've got that opportunity and I've got both the technology to be able to support me in that, but I've also got the backing of the university to be able to go off and deliver it. So, so I'll, I'll
0: finish off soon, but Luke, a question for you. You know, we, we, you know Alex has mentioned a few things or a fair few things there, but we're seeing a, a lot of skill shortages in our industry, you know, cyber professionals. I know there's some stats around a lack of th- those people. You know, are universities doing enough to kind of create curriculums to solve that problem? Or are we expecting those people to come out of university and then suddenly learn that trade? Cyber is an example. There are other areas of IT, of course.
3: I think there's some great opportunities and great programs run by universities up and down United Kingdom in support of cybersecurity and a number of them accredited by NCSC and, and civil organizations for the quality of their learning and the skills that they provide people and and actually some of them even offering hands-on experience in different roles as well. So I, I do honestly think university is gearing up people for careers in cybersecurity. I'm not sure that that's the only place we need to find talent for cybersecurity. I'm not sure that, you know, requiring higher education is always the answer to fulfilling these roles. And actually, cybersecurity as a as a problem area needs a diverse range of skills, voices, backgrounds, and experiences to allow us to deal with it. Fundamentally, cybersecurity is a very human problem that's dressed up with a lot of technology. And I don't think we're actually going to achieve the mitigations we we want probably by just taking a narrow view of where we take our candidates from i think we have to be broader than that so yeah in summary i think universities are doing a great job and and clearly significant investment going into that space
0: but probably not the whole answer to this problem on that note i think we'll say thank you to you all fascinating stuff higher education what a subject I never had a higher education, you can tell. I had low education and then went to work. Um, But on that note, they entrust me with hosting this podcast. And I thank you all for joining me today. And uh, the cliffhanger would be that Luca may or may not be joining us again. So we'll see and bid him for now a farewell. And I want to thank him for this year. He's been fantastic to support the podcast. um, And as usual, today has been a fantastic guest, as has Alex and Rachel. If you want to listen to more episodes, we've got a back catalogue you can listen to, download, and obviously choose the platform of choice and give us a five star rating. Thank you, and we'll speak to you soon.